Hi, I'm Tim Root, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. I'd like to welcome my special guest, Christy Furco. First, happy MLK Day, and thanks for joining. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be with you. I'm excited about our time today. Ah, it'll be fun, no doubt about that. So I'm going to try to give the listeners a high-level uh, bio on you. I'll, I'm sure I'll do you a disservice, but I'll I'll do my best to hit the high notes. So most recently, you are the chairwoman of the NBA. You're also on the board of directors there, co-chair of the Affordable Housing Committee, chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Not to overlook the fact that you run Wells Fargo's mortgage operation, which is probably 25,000 employees, and I think you guys fund about one out of every 10 mortgages that are originated. Before that, headed up Flagstar Bank's mortgage group, which was a considerable operation. Before that, you ran the central and western regions different times at Fannie Mae, which I, I'm pretty sure I was there when you made that pivot, which was a super impressive pivot from leading Fannie Mae's HR team to managing that huge swath of Fannie Mae customers. That no, no easy leap. Um, and you started your career so I understood it's selling medical equipment out of college. I think it was a USC undergrad and later on at uh, a master's from St. Joseph's. And that was at uh, Baxter Healthcare. You went on to Pepsi where you started the HR part of your career, human resources, that is. Honestly, I mean, as I was, as I was researching this, I literally had to stop counting the awards and professional recognitions that you received over your career because it was seriously starting to make me feel self-conscious. So I, I didn't write them all down, but... For the listeners, I will say that uh, they are considerable. So as I highlighted, you've obviously had wild professional success and I suspect personal successes as well. You know, you're known for having the work ethic of really a world champion. And I, I have to suspect that you must have like an Oxlade constitution to endure what it takes to lead at your level. And you happen to be also a black woman. I guess my question to you first, Christy, is, what motivates you to keep this pace? I mean, damn, you're going in like five different directions at full speed, you know, and for some people it's fear or a sense of responsibility. Others it's ego. Sometimes it's money, something else. How about you? Like what motivates you every day? Thank you for the question. I always get uh, sheepish when people read the bio because I feel like I'm looking around like, who are they talking about? <laughs> it does get overwhelming. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that that drives me is this kind of quest for accomplishment and um, this belief that, you know, we were all put on this earth to do amazing things and everybody's got a different path to do that. And, you know, I believe that God gave me a special set of talents and I've got to use them all each and every day to, you know, advance the cause. And the cause right now is housing. And, um, and it also helps that I don't require much sleep. So, uh, you know, I can get by with four hours of sleep a night. And so, you know, that gives me kind of 20 something hours to do the stuff that I'm super passionate about. And, you know, I'm passionate about housing. I'm passionate about making a difference. I'm, I'm certainly passionate. You know, you said it. Yeah, I'm a black woman. And, you know, right now I have the distinction of being the only black woman leading a mortgage company in the country. And I happen to be leading the largest bank originator in the country. But I was also, you know, kind of the first black in the 108 year history to, to chair the MBA. And so that drives me, um, you know, kind of that the being the first and the responsibility that comes with that. 
I feel this enormous responsibility to make a difference and have whatever I'm doing, you know, whether it's mowing the lawn or kind of breaking snow or leading a mortgage company, I, I feel like this obligation to be the best that I can be at it. And so that that desire to be the best and make a difference and to make every minute count is really what drives me. I can tell. I mean, sometimes, I mean, you and I talked about it. You find yourself in situations where you're like, holy moly, like, am I supposed to be here? Do I really have the, the chops to do that? Do you ever have those like doubts or moments of doubts or you're just, your vision is just so darn clear and you're, you have so much experience that it just doesn't even enter your head? No, of course I have those moments. You know, you talked about getting installed as the chair of the MBA. I mean, that five days in October at our annual conference where I was installed as chair, it was surreal. I mean, I had a number of moments where I was standing on that stage just in complete awe. And I was fortunate enough that my mom and my siblings and a couple of my best friends were there, not to mention my kind of whole team from Wells Fargo, many of whom I met for the first time that weekend. And, you know, just standing on that stage and, you know, it, it's, I don't want to be dramatic and say it's like your whole life flashes before you, but, you know, it, it was one of those moments where I was standing there in this surreal moment as people were standing and applauding and I'm thinking like, who, who is this? What is happening right now? And it was easily the most humbling moment of my life. But at the same time, it was absolutely overwhelming. I still see myself as the little black girl from, you know, Compton, California. And so, yeah, it was definitely a kind of pinch myself moment. That's awesome. Well, I guess that the other side of that coin is failure, you know, learning from your mistakes. And I sure my kids aren't as fond of me saying this, but I say it all the time, uh, that you rarely learn anything from getting it right. Failure is usually the best teacher. So are there, are there like one or two failures that you still look back on and shake your head? You're like, man, like how the heck did that happen? And you know, what did you learn or change as a result? I am definitely, I, I love what you said about, you know, because failures really help you learn. I am a big believer in that. You know, in fact, I think it was Ben Franklin or someone who said, there is no such thing as failures, only different ways of doing it the next time. And I definitely was fortunate to grow up with parents that really encouraged us to try everything and anything that we wanted to do. My parents put no limits on us. And so Failure was a regular part of kind of growing up. And, um, you know, it, it was, it just very quickly shifted to, yep, that didn't work out. I'm going to go do something else. Or like, how am I going to try it again differently the next time? And so I was fortunate that I had parents that, you know, encouraged that at such a young age. And so I just grew up, like if something didn't work out, it was, you know, my obsession immediately went to, all right, how to fix it and, and how to do it differently or how to do it better the next time. And so I think that's actually helped me quite a bit in my career because I have a resilience around not letting setbacks derail me, but really continuing to lean into it. And, you know, one of the ones that's most vivid for me was when I was at Fannie Mae. And I was leading the culture transformation work that accompanied the need for us to restate earnings. You may remember, or your audience may remember, Fannie Mae had to restate the earnings for those four years. And Dan Mudd, who was interim CEO, frankly, had just um, been let go, as well as several other executives. And Dan came to me and he said, you know, my success or failure is a 
CEO is going to be predicated on our ability to change this culture. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that is a lot of pressure, but really leaned into it. And there were several things that we tried. I mean, you know, because you worked there. I mean, the culture at Fannie Mae was extraordinarily strong. And, you know, when you're trying to change a culture that had been successful for literally decades, it's it's like you're, you know, Sisyphus pushing the the boulder up the hill and, uh, you know, and people throwing things at you as you're trying to do that. And it really was a challenge. And, um, you know, I remember a couple of things that we tried early on had a ton of resistance from the senior leadership and just didn't work. I mean, people, people weren't embracing it. And, you know, it was just this trial and error of continuing to find the thing that, could make the biggest shift. And I remember the breakthrough that that we had after kind of one of the listening sessions I had with some of the employees. And, you know, they were just railing on me, like what's not working is you keep saying this culture is bad and we have to change it. And that's what led to the need for us to restate these earnings is that, you know, employees knew that we were doing it wrong, but management wouldn't listen. And, you know, and they were like, but this is the company I love. This company does so good for so many people. And, you know, the mission and the vision really inspired people to be extraordinarily loyal. And it was such a powerful moment for me, because in that moment, we pivoted. And I remember the shift uh, came out of that meeting, which was, you know, it wasn't throw out the bad culture and replace with the new, but it was what was our clear cultural strength, if overdone, can become negative. And it was shifting the way we talked mm-hmm. about it, that then talked to people about how those good things about being the 800 pound gorilla and being the industry leader had been overdone. And that turned into arrogance where we believed we knew everything. And so the shift had to be collaboration and engagement. And it was just that subtle pivot that then allowed people to be able to be open to the concept of what needed to change. And we went on and were able to complete the restatement in record time. It still has the distinction of being the largest restatement in corporate America history. And, you know, we were able to do that kind of on time under budget and or ahead of time, even it ended up being one of the great successes of my career, but certainly did not start out that way at all. And so it was just a great learning to me about listening and, you know, kind of being open to fail, but then not let the failure defeat you, but to figure out what the pivot is from that, that then in this case ended up being successful. Yeah, I remember that guy. That was a horrible time. And to say that it was a subtle shift is being super generous because in the early days, I was there from like two, or 2001 to 2006. So restatement yeah. was a couple of years into that. And it was like straight up type A hunger games. I mean, everybody was, was. so, so was. on edge. And yeah, it was a difficult environment. And particularly when you talk back to failures, that was, I mean, because people were so mission sensitive and they were so sensitive about being perceived in the best light internally that failure re- was really quite frowned upon. I remember recruiting internally and you'd be like, hey, what do you think of this lore so-and-so? And they're like, ooh, I don't, you know, 15 years ago, we did a project together and oof, you know, she really duffed that one. I mean, <laughs> it, it just followed you forever. So, I mean, to, to certainly give yourself credit because that was 
a monster shift to get everybody kind of being more transparent, dropping the kind of information asymmetry, getting everyone to have their back. And it was a palpable change. So I think that's a great example. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was quite a moment. I've always touted that as the kind of hardest thing I've ever done in my career. Um, And then I said, now it is second only to leading Wells Fargo. (laughs) Yeah, during a pandemic. Something Mm. harder. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, going back to the mission and the passion project for yourself personally and for Fannie Mae, of course, was if you could just make talk about this commitment of yours to increasing minority home ownership and also the diversity in the mortgage industry. I know that's that obviously appears to be a huge priority for you personally. It is. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm thrilled to actually talk about it. So as the chair of the NBA, I mean, you basically have a year. Uh, Susan Stewart affectionately called it as, you know, your bully pulpit. For a year, you get to align the industry around. And for mine, have chosen to expand minority home ownership, which is a continuation of the great work that Susan Stewart, who preceded me, that she did. That was her sole focus uh, for her year as chair. And I, I followed suit with that. And then also expanding the diversity of the mortgage industry. And I think those two things go hand in hand. Home ownership is still the single largest financial commitment that many people will ever make in their lives. And it is a daunting process, dismay every day at how far behind from the technological advancements and digitization of the industry that mortgage is versus some of the other, even financial services, but some of the other industries for sure. And it's still an incredibly complicated paper intensive process. And because it carries such a significance in the life of and the financial health of an individual um, who's purchasing a home, you know, you still need a trusted advisor to help you through that. And it is common knowledge that minorities are underserved in that way. I mean, the fact that we sit here and ironically, in some ways, Tim, that today is Martin Luther King's celebration of his birthday and the fact that we are sitting here on his birthday and the Black home ownership rate is still some 30 points behind the white home ownership rate, the largest and widest levels since redlining, when redlining was actually legal, when, when segregation was legal. Um, the home ownership rate is at the same levels. And that is appalling to me. And um, I think it's appalling to a lot of people. And my clear passion and desire is. How do we change that? How do we make this dream of homeownership a reality for many people? And there may be people in the audience that say, okay, we've tried that before. You know, look at what happened in the last housing crisis and the disproportionate amount of minorities that were impacted by that when we tried to drive the homeownership rate up the last time. And I'm very focused on when we do it, you want it to be sustainable. And I don't think the last time we focused on increasing minority homeownership, we had the same commitment to sustainable homeownership. And I think that's what led in many ways to the crisis and in where we find ourselves today. And so, you know, I think being able to diversify the industry, to be able to attract more people of color and and the reality of the demographics say that that's something we're going to need to do, right? For the first time in the census 2020, 
whites became the minority, if you will, that, that for the first time, minorities grew fa- at a faster rate than, than whites. And so we're on our way to becoming a majority minority in this country. And so to be able to attract people of color into the mortgage industry that can help be trusted advisors to help what's going to be the biggest population for first-time home buyers for kind of new housing entrants um, is really critical that our industry be positioned to serve the market and um, minorities are going to make up the majority of the market and so we need to be positioned to do that so the health of our industry can continue to move forward. Yeah, I think the stubbornness of the the homeownership gap, when you called it appalling, I'd say it's kind of maddening, right? Because it does feel like, you know, especially from you and I, you know, from Fannie Mae, you're like, daggone. I mean, we seemed like we were flipping every rock, turning every screw, running every trap to try to to really improve things. And of course it did at that point in time. And of course, minorities were disproportionately affected through the financial crisis for a variety of uh, factors, including malfeasance, fraud, misrepresentation, and whatever. But a lot of lessons came out of that too, that I, I'm fearful that are working at cross purposes in this new environment with the Biden administration's goals around expanding homeownership, making it more affordable. And I've you know, been on the record for easily 10 years of saying, look, homeownership is probably the last legitimate opportunity for wealth creation, right? It's probably not crypto. It sure as hell is not a, sure. a CD speculation in the stock market. But the problem lies with in the financial crisis, it did seem like at that time that the administration was looking for real villains and they pointed their ire at the originators and servicers who were clearly were culpable on some level but maybe not to the degree that they were ultimately um, punished for hundreds of billions of dollars in buybacks and fines and settlements and things like that. But that certainly is still present today. So as we're looking at, on one hand, asking the industry to expand access to homeownership, which we all agree is good for the the enlightened self-interest of the country, right? Not just a, a group, but for all of us to do so. But if, a, if at the other side of their mouth, you're saying that there are going to be this reinvigorated enforcement regime and that basically that originators and services are going to be so scrutinized that in the inevitable event that there's a, a default or uh, for God forbid, a foreclosure or something like that, that the fear is, of course, that the servicers and the originators are going to be once again taken out to the woodshed and, for, and what could be franchise risking sort of sanctions and treatment. So it's hard to expand home ownership and have lenders leaning into that agenda while at the same time knowing that not everyone's going to be successful and that on the tail end of that, there are real risks that this reinvigorated enforcement regime will take it out on them. I don't know what your reaction is to that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's real. I think we've seen that before. So there is no question but I also say that we can't let that stop us from doing what we think is the right thing. And I think you see, you know, I will say, Tim, and I, you know, we've talked about my role at Wells Fargo. We've talked about my role as the now chair of the NBA. I also serve on the OCC's REACH program. I head up the Affordable Housing Working Group. And um, it's a really... Yeah. So it's a really unique vantage point that I am occupying all three of those roles at the same time in a time that I think 
is one of the most pivotal in our nation's history, frankly. Um, you know, I think this reckoning with racial equity, this this reckoning with the homeownership gap that, that we're talking about. And I, frankly, in my career, have never seen such alignment between the administration, between lenders, between nonprofits, between the GSEs and, and HUD. It feels like the stars are aligned where everyone is leaning into this thing. What, what can we do and how do we advance this forward? And I think I think we have to be absolutely intentional about how we're moving forward. You know, DNI, you know, I believe stands for deliberate and intentional. We need very intentional plans about how we're going to move forward and being deliberate about that. And I think like special purpose credit programs, right? That carve out that allows you to then say, what can we do to advance this? And are there certain programs or options that we can do knowing the history of our country and how the systemic inequalities that have plagued the housing sector back for decades? Like, can we be intentional about some of those changes and create these carve-outs through special purpose credit programs that say, okay, we're going to lean into down payment assistance. We're going to lean into credit costs. Do we really need to do appraisals in the same way? Or do we acknowledge the bias that exists in our appraisal valuation system and kind of do something different, but being really intentional about how do we advance those things forward and certainly not penalize people for trying to do the right thing. And there's a lot of brilliant people in Washington. There's a lot of brilliant people in our industry we can figure this out if we really have a mind to do it. And I believe the mind to do it is now. I believe there's alignment to do it. And I think we just have to be intentional about how do we do it. And you need that intention, whatever we decide to do, right? You need that aligned across all the different constituency groups. And you have to align incentives. You have to align disincentives, you know, that hammer that you talked about that happened when, when things went bad. And you have to have a mindset going back to where we actually, your first question to me, we have to have a mindset that says failure is, there is no failure. We, we, we just have to learn how to do it differently. And how do we truly view this as an open, fertile ground for trial and error where we are advancing, we are trying things that if on the aggregate end up advancing more minority homeowners, then we will have won in the end. But you can't, you can't villainize the industry for trying to do the right thing if we're all committed in the same way. And that just requires that everybody's clear about what the rules of the road are and then how we're going to proceed down that and do it consistently. I couldn't agree more either. I mean, never before they had the social and political priorities aligned around home ownership like this. And as you've indicated, the stakeholders are all aligned. That's my only hang up now is, again, if you have people who are banging, saber rattling about, you know, bad actors and watch your practices and, and rear end for anything that might go wrong, that doesn't compel people to lean in and, and make risks and fail and try again and things like that. So hopefully some of that rhetoric will calm down and we'll focus on the, the bigger priority and the goals around um, expanding home ownership and closing that, that home ownership gap. Yeah. We're intelligent enough. There's bad actors in anything, right? But 
having 15 years at Fannie Mae and now being on the lender side, I mean, I've gotten a, in through the MBA, I've gotten a really good view of this industry. There are exceptional people in this industry that really care and are committed to do the right thing. And so we've got to have a process by which we identify who the bad actors are. And you know, it's so funny. I mean, if you ask the lenders, they know who the bad actors are, um, you no. know, because we're competing against them every day. So you know who has the unfair advantage or not. We know who the bad actors are. Go after the bad actors. But this broad brush penalizing the industry is not the right way to go about it because it only ends up continuing to reinforce the systemic issues that have plagued us for a very long time. And and that's why I think we've got to be deliberate and intentional about our path forward, put some key stakes in the ground about what the rules of the road are, um, what will be tolerated and what won't be tolerated, and really leaning in to advance it. And again, if we have the focus on sustainability, which I don't think we did the last time, if, if we have the right focus on sustainability and there's an accountability towards sustainability, then I think that will help. And you know, that's where I've been so impressed with the nonprofits and some of the housing counselors and people who've dedicated, again, organizations who've dedicated their life's work. And I've gotten, gotten to know many of them. They are doing the work in the trenches that can help us. And so how do we help support the neighbor works of the world, the Operation Hopes of the world, you know, the Unidos of the world, the National Urban League? Like, how do we help support organizations like that that are doing this work in the trenches that can help us find solutions that will make a difference in these local markets? Great. Well, that then ties in nicely with the social infrastructure plan, the Build Back Better plan that was recently put on ice. So now it's yeah. kind of dead on arrival, I guess. There, there was about $150 billion <laughs> of housing-related provisions in that bill. So my thinking is because the, the mission, the goals are so strong that the administration is going to look to lean into the GSEs or HUD really as instruments of public policy to you know, to accomplish some of those goals from Build Back Better, things like increasing housing supply, expanding home ownership, lowering housing costs, you name it. As you think about it, how much, how much do you think the government should lean into those entities as a substitute for the provisions that are likely being stripped out of Build Back Better? They might make it back in some separate or independent bill, but for the foreseeable future, they're not likely to be legislated. Yeah, I mean, I think it actually makes sense. You know, one of the things Sandra Thompson, you know, acting director of FHFA, she and I mean, she had her confirmation hearing. So, you know, gonna hopefully she gets confirmed and and can step in as the the permanent director, which I, I think would be a big win for the agencies. But you know, she's really pushed the agencies to focus on what is their equitable housing plan and to really come up with their proposals. For that, I think the GSEs, and again, having spent 15 years there, you know, I think the mission-driven focus that the GSEs had and have that actually has taken a back seat over the last, you know, well, really since they've been in conservatorship. I mean, there's been the affordable housing plan, but and the housing goals are still there. But I really think, you know, having them lean into this with their equitable housing plan. And really being intentional about how do they help support the industry? 
how do they leverage their knowledge, their resources to drive some of the innovation? I mean, we talked about, and you know, I mentioned appraisals earlier and some of the bias that exists in, in the appraisals. I mean, when I think about the COVID pandemic that we just went through, we're still in it. But if, when I think about that and its inception going back to March of 2020, had the GSEs not spent the previous 18 to 24 months really driving innovation and appraisals, we would have been dead in the water. No one wanted anyone in their home, yet we still were able to facilitate the largest refinance market. Um, it's going to be in our history when you look at 2020 and then a back-to-back in 2021 with some of these innovations and appraisals. And that is a role that the GSEs can play, given that they have consistency across the industry and they can enable that type of innovation. And so I think for FHFA to challenge the GSEs to think about how do you really drive the sustainable home ownership? What are the programs? What are the processes? What are the innovations and technologies that you need to put in place? to help enable this with all of the data and knowledge that they have. And between two GSEs, you know, we're talking about $5 trillion of mortgages. And when you add HUD to that, right, it just, I mean, that's the housing industry. And so how do you take all that knowledge and information that you have and create solutions that uh, really start to advance some of these issues in housing supply about expanding minority homeownership? but then also lowering costs. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that we do in the industry that we do because we've been doing that for decades and it's a new day and we have different information that can facilitate different outcomes. And I say we lean into the GSEs to help us figure that out. Again, we're in a, we're in perfect alignment. I, I thought it was amazing during conservatorship how creative and uh, innovative the GSEs were when they had no economic incentive to do so, to keep innovating from a technology perspective for the industry and lowering costs. You, when you were there and I was there, you know, the cost originating a mortgage was around 2,500 bucks. So after like Dodd-Frank and the great financial crisis and obviously, you know, the compliance and um, legal costs that went up exponentially and you really had thought latency, not leadership, right? you were going back to the old way of doing things and you drove the cost to originate back up to like 8,500 bucks. It took less labor to build an F-150 than it did to manufacture a mortgage, which is madness. (laughs) Um, So I I, I do think that there's a good opportunity for that. And I think that the GSEs, probably more so than HUD, are going to be the ones that will be the primary instruments of public policy. They've They've got the technology, they've got a portfolio, and in conservatorship, being mindful, of course, of safety and soundness uh, first and foremost, but you could use that portfolio for all sorts of different credit programs that would expand home ownership, uh, hopefully responsibly and thoughtfully. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, Tim. I mean, you said they have no economic incentive to do it other than that's what they were created to do. When you go back and look at, you know, why FDR created the agencies in the first place, I mean, it was to create the stability in housing and, you know, the kind of dual mission of being in all markets at all times and, uh, you know, really ensuring that they are enabling this sustainable, affordable, and really driving down the cost of the mortgage to be able to provide access to all who want it and can afford it. 
that's what they were created to do. And so I think they are in the, the perfect place to be able to do that. And they have the vision, they have the knowledge, and they've got the resources and data to be able to advance that in a way that others can. Yeah, no, totally. I was thinking about the the lack of the economic incentive when there was the net worth sweep. They're like, so what's the point? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I got nothing else to do. (laughs) They've They've been in conservatorship for so many years. They've got nothing else to do. Why not keep leaning into it? Yeah, I think if you unleash them and just said, fix this problem, I mean, they would tear into it like a hungry bear. And they would, and they would be very successful in doing it. But that that leads to that my my last legitimate question, which was along with that come risks, um, you know, around expanding the the role of government in in mortgage and housing markets. And I uh, use the extreme example of you know the student loan market. So that was effectively nationalized, whatever the heck it was, ten years ago or so a little bit because they didn't think banks were doing a good job of serving the borrowers and they were um, adding costs and were making too much profits for something that they really probably shouldn't, didn't need to be involved in was kind of the premise behind it. And I see my, I see the mortgage industry going in that direction where roughly 90 plus percent of new originations are government backed. The government realizes that now they can unilaterally, doesn't mean that they shouldn't have done this, um, suspend mortgage payments, right, across the board for, you know, up to almost two years. Yeah. And same goes for foreclosure. So my fears are just like the student loan market, that anyone will be able to get a mortgage on any property, that you'll have defaults and delinquencies increase. And ultimately, you have the moral hazard of the government backing all these things, and much like student loans, right, where people think, well, heck, I'm not going to never really going to pay this damn thing back, right? I mean, the government's going to forgive it at some point. It makes me anxious to see how we seem to be heading in that direction in the housing and mortgage markets. And I'm just curious who your thoughts there. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. I think the markets need to be balanced. I think the role in private capital in, in markets is really, really important. You just look at what happened you know, when we came out of the last housing crisis, and then then obviously this worldwide pandemic, which certainly a first in, in, in my lifetime, the role of the government to take swift and expedient action was absolutely critical. And, and I think stabilizing the markets was something that was absolutely critical to do. But I think Treasury and kind of their need to kind of take decisive action. I think they did what they believe they needed to do in the moment, as they did from the last crisis. And I mean, we're talking about extraordinary events. Um, I remember coming out of the last crisis, I said, boy, this was like the hundred year flood. We'll never have another one of these in my lifetime. And, you know, little did I know, just some few short years later, we'd be having this global pandemic, which, you know, is another hundred year flood in and of itself. And so, I think when you have extraordinary events like that, you do need to take extraordinary actions to try to stabilize the market, stabilize the industry, obviously protect people from something that wasn't of their own making. There's no question there's kind of moral hazards coming to this, but you know, with COVID forbearance expiring here in September, so the first kind of those who had the full 18 months expired, um, we are very much seeing a very fast recovery. So those who are coming off of it or getting back 
to, you know, making their payments. I mean, the, the percentage of people that actually just wrote checks and paid it all and brought themselves current said that people used it as an insurance policy because they weren't sure that was what was going to happen, right? So they were either ran their own small businesses or were relying on income sources from other places that they weren't sure how they were going to rebound back. So they took forbearance as the safety net that it was intended to be. And, you know, now that their time has expired, they wrote checks and they're back current and, you know, kind of were back to the races. That was a large percentage that's happened coming out of this crisis. But we're getting people into solutions that make sense and people are normalizing back. And, um, you know, then with the Fed's announcement, kind of at their meeting this week and reading the minutes in terms of normalizing their purchases and the rate hikes that we can expect here in 2022. I mean, I think you are very much seeing a desire to start to pull back on the government's role and have the market start to normalize and function appropriately. And I'm a believer that markets are efficient and markets will find the equilibrium. But I think there is a role for the GSEs to play in that. I think there's a role in the government to play in that. And I think there's a role in private capital to play in that. And when we have an over-reliance on one over the others, uh, that's where we find ourselves out of balance. And so I like the solutions that that figure out how to keep those in balance. But um, I think private capital plays a pivotal role in the markets, but so does the government, because that ensures that we can be in all markets at all times, like we just saw. I'm a fan of balance. I agree. Yeah. 90 plus percent feels a little out of balance and becomes pro-cyclical as opposed to, right, the kind of counter-cyclical nature of uh, the government support. If you don't give any oxygen to the private market, whether it's Wells Fargo's portfolio or private label MBS, then, you know, they eventually just, it just withers and dies. And the inevitable is that the government just has practically a hundred percent share. And I think that comes with uh, some, some really, that's some positives, but some pretty terrifying consequences. But hopefully we, we won't get there. And to your point, you'll see the government continue to pull back a little bit, give some oxygen to the private market. I was thrilled to see Sandra Thompson moving the LLPAs on some of the higher balance loans and uh, I think it was second homes. Again, giving a little bit more competitive yeah. opportunity to the private market, which is just healthy and balanced. So I, I, I agree right. with all that. I totally agree. Yeah. All right. This is all very fascinating, serious stuff. So there's got to be something fun that you do, right? I mean, I don't know when the hell you'd have time, <laughs> but is there anything <laughs> that you are that you do outside of all of these activities, you know, just recreationally? Yeah. Well, I'm a big runner. I love getting out and running. It's also a great stress reliever for me. I love a good bottle of wine. And so, you know, guilty pleasure is going to Napa and joining way too many wine, (laughs) way too many wine clubs, uh, which I also haven't had a chance to do during the crisis. So uh, I am looking forward to kind of getting back to travel and, and leaning in to do that for sure. And, you know, these days, COVID has really been this, right? It's just the mindless binge watching on uh, kind of some of the shows. It's a, it's amazing how you sit down just to watch a single show and the next thing you know, four hours has gone by and, you know, you've been to watch several of these shows. And, you know, I think that's a guilty pleasure how to make the time go away and it's also a great kind of just de-stressor not having to think about you know mortgage and the challenges of the industry but to mindlessly binge watch ted lasso or something is is really helpful 
or Schitt's Creek or, you know, one of those, yeah. The Bachelor. It's so <laughs> yeah. funny. You, I was just talking to Pete Mills. Uh, I think it was the last interview and he and I like developed basically a knitting circle. We're like, we're like housewives from the 50s swapping recipes like every week about different different shows that we found and yeah so i totally agree and i love it the idea of you in a wine club just all i can think about is come on you're you're probably like co-chairing it or chairing the wine club you're not like passively (laughs) contributing to it or something like that but it's yeah those are very relatable hobbies and i commend you on everything that you're doing for the industry it has certainly got not gone unnoticed i'm Thrilled that you were able to do this interview with me, and I look forward to catching up with you properly in person next time. Absolutely. Tim, thanks for your time. It's great to be with you always. You as well. Thanks, Christy. Take care. You too. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.